coming up on Mayo Clinic Q&A. One out of every 12 Americans has gotten infected with COVID and one out of every 690 has died. But as America fights through the COVID pandemic, the practices of hand washing, mask wearing, social distancing and vaccinations have the nation seen a substantial drop in COVID cases. People have gotten the message. I think they're much better. They're wearing masks, trying to do better with the distancing, even in the face of kind of being emotionally exhausted of all this. So well done, America. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm Dr. Helena Gazelka. We're recording this podcast on February the 8th, 2021. Today, I wanna say a special thank you to our viewers and listeners. We hear from so many of you who find the information that we share informative and useful, and that's certainly our goal. Our audience also asks us terrific questions, and so we're gonna answer some of those today. Here to open the mailbag with me is Dr. Greg Poland, infectious disease expert from Mayo Clinic. Thanks for being here again, Greg. Yes, of course, good to be here. Well, all right, Greg, we're gonna jump in today because we have a whole list of questions from our listeners and that they want to know things. Excellent. Um, the first question from a listener is to be reminded about the timing of the second vaccination. And in particular, Greg, I have had some uh, individuals that I work with here asking me, is there a time that's too late to get your second vaccine? I had a friend say that they were scheduled to get a vaccine in Florida, but that their first vaccine was canceled because they were not able to get an appointment for the second vaccine. Mm. What do you say to that? Well, you know, it's one of these situations where we're altering policy based on the practical consideration of supply. So the idea has been that the best thing to do is to follow the science. In other words, the phase three trials showed that the interval of three weeks for Pfizer, four weeks for Moderna was what led to those efficacy estimates that were spectacular of 95%. Now what we're seeing are moves toward increasing that. The, the likelihood that that would in any way diminish the immune response and make it less effect is minimal. So uh, as, as people have amply heard, you know, really throughout the scientific establishment, if we had to delay your second dose by a week or two or three, that's highly unlikely to have any substantial negative effect. In fact, I might, I might actually add that a paper came out from AstraZeneca, now that's just one vaccine, showing that the longer interval actually benefited the uh, eventual immune response. So there you go. So many unanswered questions. We keep hearing new things all the time. It yeah. keeps, us, keeps it exciting, doesn't it? It does. Greg, the second uh, question from a listener is a little bit of a follow-up on that. So what if I can get a vaccine from one company, but then get a second vaccine from a different company? Um, can we do that? Can we have our two vaccines be from different manufacturers? You know, it's a really good question, a really practical question, one I hope that will prove to be true. Notice how I said that though, because we don't yet have data. The very first study looking at that interchange between two mRNA vaccines is just starting actually in the UK. So we should soon have some data. 
it makes sense that if you use the same type of vaccine, in other words, one of the two mRNA or one of the two adenovirus vectored vaccines together, that that likely would work. I think the larger concern would be what if you use an mRNA for your first dose and an adenovirus for the second dose? We have zero data on that. Greg, the next question is from a listener who is using blood thinners. They're curious whether the fact that they are on blood thinners uh, causes them to have any increased risk for the clotting that can occur with COVID. That's the first question. The second is, is there any risk with a vaccine for someone who is on blood thinners? Yeah, so it kind of depends on what they mean by a blood thinner, but if they mean an actually, actual anticoagulant, presumably their physician put them on that because they have a clotting disorder or are at risk for one. So one would imagine that that risk would be heightened in the disease state caused by COVID because as you've pointed out before, there certainly is an increased risk of clot-related disorders with COVID infection. However, being on the anticoagulant is what we would do if somebody were more severely affected and in the hospital. So uh, whatever that risk is, it's been reduced for this particular individual because of the fact that they're on the anticoagulant. Now being on the anticoagulant itself will not have any adverse effect on the effect of the vaccine. So it does not interfere with the immunogenicity of that. I think it's a little bit difficult of a question to answer too, because there's so many reasons for yeah. being on blood thinners. Some are to reduce the risk of something, some are to reduce the genetic uh, risk yeah. of clotting for some reason. Well, and some people might consider, you know, aspirin to be a blood thinner, and that's different than being on Coumadin or one of the other anticoagulant drugs. Next question. What do we know about whether the vaccine can slow or stop the transmission of COVID-19? This is really the million dollar question that all of us as scientists want to, uh, want to know the answer to. There are hints toward that. In fact, the hints are that it might reduce it by half to two thirds, something like that. But those are really preliminary data. They're controversial right now. And I think all of us feel that we need to wait for those you know, properly performed studies to know the answer to that. We do have one clue though, that is interesting and unfortunate in relation to the new variants that are developing. So if you look, and in fact, I just uh, wrote out the data here so that we would um, have it uh, available for us. If you look at asymptomatic infection, not quite the same thing as transmission, right? But a, a hint toward that. The efficacy of the AstraZeneca vaccine against asymptomatic infection fell to about 26% in the face of the South African variant, whereas against the variant it was designed against, it was about 75%. So, you know, there's, there's hints there that there may in fact be differences. If you look at the ability of the vaccine to protect against mild to moderate disease, against the South African uh, variant with the AstraZeneca vaccine in a young cohort of healthy people, it had minimal impact. So I think it's going, I think the answer to the question 
is going to depend on A, getting the proper studies done, and B, which variant are we talking about in terms of a transmission? Now, one thing is important in, in this discussion is that when we receive these systematic vaccines, in other words, those designed to uh, elicit a systemic response, like the mRNA vaccines and the adenovirus vaccines, they are very good at blocking disease. They are not very good, as is true for many vaccines, in blocking what we would call nasal infection, because that requires a different type of antibody called IgA and a, and a type within that called secretory IgA. So it is apparent that you can be protected against disease and infection that has any kind of symptom associated with it by getting the vaccine. But it is also apparent that at least in some cases, and again, depending on the variant, you could still get infected, if you will, nasally, have no symptoms from it, but still transmit that virus. So that's a lot of complicated data, but that's why it's not so easy to answer the question and why it hasn't been answered yet as to whether the vaccine is blocking asymptomatic infection. We know that when we do viral swabs, we can find virus there, even after, after uh, getting the vaccine. But that doesn't necessarily equate with the risk of transmission of that to someone else. So we'll have to stay tuned to get a solid answer. But you can still be carrying live virus in your nares, and another reason to keep your mask on. Absolutely. And that's the, that's the um, implication of that, Helena. You, you uh, spotted that right away. Absolutely. That's why even after we get vaccinated, we keep our masks on to protect other people. There was an awful lot in the news last week about um, carriers and who's transmitting uh, the virus. And it seems that there's a lot of transmission uh, from younger adults. Yeah. Um, so many have questioned the um, strategy to vaccinate those um, in the, who are older adults, retired persons, 65, older. Um, I think in the state of Minnesota, it's been 80 and older, different in different states. But should we be vaccinating those younger adults first so they stop spreading the virus to others? It's a really interesting thing. So, you know, the, the strategy of immunization was, as you pointed out, Helena, based around the notion of let's prevent sickness, hospitalization, death, because we saw that huge surge demand on the, on the medical uh, system and various places like New York, LA, Arizona, etc. Now, what's happened is that mo recent modeling by the CDC has shown that about 65% of the, vac of the uh, infections are being transmitted and caused by people who are between the ages of about 20 and 49 or so. Now, the question is, has that always been the case? Or is that another example of a moving target? In other words, because, and in fact, we have now immunized about one out of every 10 Americans because of that level of immunization in the older age groups, has the virus moved to the younger age groups, which are more mobile. We've had a harder time convincing that age group of the need for wearing a mask and physical distancing but they are the most susceptible population now. So 
I suspect it may be a combination of both things, not only the age group, their mobility and not wearing masks in some cases, but also they are the, uh, they're, they're the better target for the virus, if you will, at this point. Greg, our next listener wants to know if they have been vaccinated, had their full course of uh, the vaccine, uh, should they develop COVID-19 symptoms? Should they then be tested or should we assume that they're safe and don't need to be tested? That's a, that's a good question. Our, our listeners ask superb questions, as I've often said. I said so. Every one of these could be a research project and it'd be a productive one. Um, so certainly uh, we know that people who have gotten the vaccine in carefully controlled trials, 5% of them still end up getting infected. Another reason to wear our masks after vaccination. Now, when you move it out of a clinical trial into the general public, we're immunizing people, for example, immunocompromised people who weren't in the original trials. That means that the overall efficacy of the vaccine is going to drop from say 95% to, you know, who knows what, 90, maybe even 80%, something like that. So you have a larger fraction of people who got the vaccine who could still get infected. So given that, despite the fact that you've been vaccinated, if you develop symptoms compatible with COVID-19, absolutely you need to be tested. The vaccine will not interfere with that testing. And the main reason for that is A, so we can watch you, be sure you're not developing any complications, but B, so that you know to go into uh, uh, isolation and quarantine so you don't spread it to other people. So uh, a very good question. Makes sense. Yeah. Greg, there has been so much confusion around this topic about using acetaminophen or Tylenol is the brand name for, for that medication yeah. um, or other non-steroidal medications that we would call things like Advil or ibuprofen uh, before or after having received the vaccine. Can you give us the straight up on that again in very simple terms? So whether I can do it in simple terms, <laughs> there's a lot of science behind it. And that's the hard part about, you know, a black and white answer. So let me just take you very quickly through the data. Point one, in studies of infants getting their first doses of childhood vaccines, taking something like Tylenol did reduce their antibody titer. That was not seen with subsequent doses. Point two, in adults getting vaccines such as influenza vaccine, the data has been inconsistent with most of us believing that it doesn't have any significant clinical negative effect on the efficacy of the vaccine. Point three, we know that even with these variants, for example, the South African variant, that the uh, antibody neutralizing ability drops by about ninefold, and yet people are protected against severe disease. The last point is that Tylenol or non-steroidals in adults may have a detectable effect, but the question is whether it's a clinically significant effect. Let me make up an example. These are made up numbers. Let's say you need an antibody level of 100 to be protected. These vaccines that we've seen data for, these four vaccines thus far, 
they might be collectively raising antibody levels of say a thousand or 800. Now remember you only need, and I'm making this up, a level of 100. So what if it drops it from 800 to 750? It is not a meaningful clinical effect. Having said all that, because this hasn't been directly studied with COVID vaccines, the recommendation has been to avoid taking them before receiving your dose, but no problem taking them after receiving your dose. I myself had to take one dose of Tylenol after my second dose of vaccine because I did develop a fever uh, after that. Uh, and fortunately that uh, fever abated with Tylenol, but I have no concerns that that has diminished my immune response. Okay, Greg, I'm gonna pin you down a little harder on this one. So it's the before the vaccine that we're supposed to avoid taking these medications. How long before, 48 hours before, a week before, 24 hours before, and should someone delay their vaccine if they have forgotten or had to take one of these medications uh, within the time period beforehand? Oh, that you're really pinning me down today. <laughs> well, and, and the truth of the matter is, I'm going to, because I think it's so important that we say, where are we speculating and where do we have data? I don't have data for that question. So I'm going to use the medical knowledge we have to say that I think you have a good safety margin if you don't take it the day before you get it. Let's say you're going to get it at eight o'clock tomorrow morning. Well, then don't take Tylenol or a non-steroidal today. Now, where that data is a little clearer is people taking it the few hours before their dose. That's where some of those data showing decreased antibody responses have come from. When you, I don't, I don't see any reason to say, well, you know, if you took it 48 hours or a week ago that you have to delay your dose. I think there's no data for that. That doesn't fit with what we know biologically. The other, okay, piece, the other go ahead. I think that you're making is a, is a real practical one. You know, it's, it's not uh, been proven easy for the general public to get a vaccine yet. So when they have an appointment to get one, go get it. I just don't think it's going to be an issue and they're gonna get a second dose anyway, so. So we trust you even when you speculate, Greg, you can probably speculate better than a lot of us. So is it safe to say, Greg, that we might be comparing apples to oranges? Can we consider an infant immune system to be similar to an adult immune system? No, and you're right. It is apples to oranges, very much so. The, the, the immune system of an infant is very different. In fact, it's interesting when we give, for example, the DPT vaccine, we have to give a higher dose to infants than we give to adults in order to induce that immune response. So that's why I say with adults, I really don't have any clinical concern over that. I recognize that the CDC has a recommendation born of that infant data saying, you know, probably best not to take it the day you're gonna get, you know, the day before you're getting your uh, vaccine dose. But even the CDC says, taking a, a dose of Tylenol or a leave or something like that after receipt of the vaccine is fine. Okay. <laughs> That's the best we can do on that one, huh, Greg? <laughs> Our next question is about other vaccines. So this is the time of year people might be getting shingles vaccines, pneumovax, flu vaccines. 
is there a time period um, after another vaccine when one should wait before getting their COVID vaccine? Really good question. And that's so easy to answer. Here's the data. Okay? Try, Greg. Here's the, here's, it's so hard for a physician and a scientist to make it too simple, right? So in the studies, the phase three COVID studies that were done, they did not allow people to receive a vaccine 14 days in front of or 14 days after receipt of a COVID vaccine. Now, the primary reason they did that was twofold. One, the theoretical risk of interference, but the larger concern was a safety concern. They didn't want to confuse side effects with one and the other. So the recommendation carried now into clinical practice, but this should not be interpreted as a hard and fast rule. But the recommendation is to avoid getting a vaccine 14 days before or 14 days after. Now, as you might imagine, this has caused some concern, particularly earlier in the fall with flu vaccines. And so, you know, if somebody showed up and they'd had one of those vaccines within that date, we would still give a vaccine. We would not exclude them, but we would tell them about the theoretical risk of a side effect or confusing that side effect, but uh, otherwise not a problem. Excellent. Well, we have been dwindling the mailbag down, Greg, so I'm going to ask you, are there any last uh, words of wisdom you'd like to share with us today? Yeah, you know, I, I always kind of track the numbers. I, I would say the good news is right now we are falling back down into a lull. When you look over the last, um, uh, yesterday, there were 1,300 new deaths, okay? We had been getting up to 3,000 and 4,000 a day. So that represents a substantial drop. We had 87,000 new cases yesterday. We were as high as 300,000 new cases a day. So, it, you know, people have gotten the message. I think they're much better and I observe that when I'm out and about, that they're wearing masks, trying to do better, you know, with the distancing, even in the face of kind of being emotionally exhausted of all this. So, you know, well done, America. This is working, and you're seeing that. In fact, the CDC did a study showing that in states that people wore masks, hospitalization rates fell by 5.5%. Now, 5.5% might not sound like a big deal, but to a hospital system, that's huge in the population. Uh, so that, that's the good news about it. The bad news is that these variants are coming. In fact, the UK variant, which is now in 33 states in the US, the rate of disease caused by that is doubling every 10 days. So I think it's again, another one of these lulls before a new storm. So I wanna encourage our listeners, don't don't fatigue with wearing the mask and distancing, even after you've gotten two doses of vaccine. We are now, as of today, one out of every 12 Americans has gotten infected with COVID and one out of every 690 has died as a result of COVID. So, you know, we, we kind of have to hold these, the good news and the not so good news together and use that to shape our policy and our own, you know, our, our, our own self-discipline, I guess it is, 
in terms of wearing a mask and, and distancing. And when you have a vaccine available, getting that vaccine. I like it so much better when you can stick to the good news, Greg. <laughs> but we have to be realistic. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I, I think the hallmark of this program is that we've been very transparent. We try to give the good, the bad, and the ugly of the data because that's actionable information that people can use to protect themselves and their family. Thanks for being here today, Greg. My pleasure. You heard it here again, folks. Hands, face, space, and vaccinate from our uh, colleague and friend, Dr. Greg Poland, infectious disease expert, virologist, and vaccine expert at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, thanks for being here today, Greg. Of course. Thanks too to our listeners who have sent us questions. If you have questions that you'd like to hear answers to on Mayo Clinic Q&A, please send your questions to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu. Well, I hope that you learned something today. I know that I did, and we wish everyone a wonderful day. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well.